0: Thankful for you and all that you do um, to continuously pour into your children. Um, We are grateful for you in many, many ways, and I hope you feel that today. Um, We're grateful for you every day, but we like to express that in a special way on Mother's Day. So, happy Mother's Day, and good morning to everyone else. Uh, If you are new around here, my name is Kenny. I have the privilege of being the pastor here at Mission Way, and we are in a series through uh, a part of the book of Revelation, Um, If you are new around here and you haven't heard any part of this series yet, we're not moving through things like the Antichrist and the end times necessarily because at the beginning of Revelation, we have this section where Jesus writes seven letters to seven churches. And if you have been here throughout this series, there's something I haven't mentioned yet that I do think is important uh, to note. And that is the fact that while I'm interpreting these churches as seven literal churches that existed during this time, not everybody does interpret it that way, and I think it's at least worth letting you know that there are other views out there. Um, some people would say that these seven churches represent periods in church history. Um, so if you track church history, you'll see uh, periods of the church where these churches kind of line up with some of the things that were going on. And they, they do line up pretty well in that way. I'm not, I, there are respected theologians that hold that view. There are other people that would say that while this isn't necessarily church history, these churches just represent types of churches even today. Now, we would say that to a degree because as we move through this series, we see that there are churches even today that look a lot like some of these churches that we're seeing in Revelation. And then others would say, well, this is just simply generally Jesus speaking to Christians and these churches represent types of Christians. And again, while that may add up in certain circumstances, I believe that the most faithful, honest way to look at these churches is to see them as seven literal churches. We look at history, and we see that these churches really did exist, and we can know a lot of things about them. Um, But I do think it's worth at least mentioning for those that wanna dig deeper into this, that there are some other views about these churches. But no matter any of those views that you take, Either way, we take these churches and we approach this in such a way that we say, God, what do you have to say to me? Because in every one of the letters, as we've seen each week, Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, listen up. If you are a follower of Christ, listen up, because these words that Jesus gives to these churches are words to the church, every follower of Jesus. And today we come to Sardis. This is the fifth Church on the stop. I said in week one that these letters were taken basically in a circle. So they left Patmos, where John wrote this from, and this messenger took them in a circle all the way back to Patmos. And Sardis was next on the stop. Now, there's a lot of facts about Sardis. Matter of fact, I I think I've discovered more information about this city than any of the others so far. But there are uh, a lot of things that, as you'll see this morning, closely parallel the church in Sardis as well. A lot of historical facts about the city that I think parallel things that were going on in the church. Sardis was a fortress of a city. Matter of fact, it was considered for a long time to be impossible to get in. It was considered an impossible fortress to penetrate because it was on a steep Acropolis. It was on this steep hill, and it was surrounded by walls, and there was really only one way in and out, and it was through this steep hill, and so it was easily defended. However, twice in the history of Sardis, even though it was virtually impossible to get through twice, it was conquered, and in both instances, it was because the army was either lazy or they neglected a part of their responsibility. And so twice in its history, it was conquered. Once in 17 AD, there was a massive earthquake that took it down. And so outwardly, it was a city that seemed very rich, and it was. There was a lot of gold here in Sardis. Matter of fact, it's considered by many to be the place where gold and silver was first minted into coins. So it was a very rich cultural city. It was very uh, full of history. It was a place that you saw and you thought they had everything. They were safe, they had prosperity, and on the outside, it seemed to be thriving, but two conquests and an earthquake later, and Sardis was struggling. Matter of fact, it's one of the only cities out of these seven churches that does not still exist today. Obviously, the land is still there, but there's not a city there, unlike the others that we see. We'll see that that parallels the church. There's an illustration of Sardis that comes to mind. Um, I'm fascinated by by stars and planets and um, I don't know a lot about it at all but I'm always fascinated to hear information and one of the things that fascinates me about the stars is that a star can die and yet we can still see the light from that star for many many years to come because of how far away they are and so you may see the light from a star right now tonight that's not even there anymore that's a lot like the church in Sardis we see points of their history, we see things that they had done well, but no longer are doing that. And they have a reputation, Jesus says, that's no longer true of them. So let's dive into what Jesus speaks to the church in Sardis before I get deeper into that. In Revelation chapter three, verse one, Jesus says, and to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Each week we've said it's important to see how Jesus introduces himself. What he's saying here is the seven spirits represents the Holy Spirit. Now, um, there's a verse in Isaiah chapter 11, verse two, that many people believe that Jesus is alluding to where God talks about the spirit of the Lord and describes the spirit of the Lord in seven different ways. Could be alluding to that, but scholars agree that Jesus is speaking of the spirit of God because seven is a number of perfection. The seven spirits of God equaling the, the Holy Spirit. And the seven stars, we saw in Revelation 1, verse 20, in week one of this series, that that represents the angels of the churches. The angels of the churches being a pastor or a messenger of the church. What Jesus is saying here is don't forget that I am with you, that I know you, that I'm present, and I know what's going on. Once again, Jesus reminding these churches of his sovereignty, a place that likes to hide away from the world and be tucked into their own little corner Blocked in from the world, Jesus is saying, don't forget that I am there, I'm with you. And so Jesus goes on, the second half of verse one into verse two, he says, I know your works. Here it is, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead, much like the star that dies. We see the light, they have a reputation of being alive, but they are spiritually speaking, dead. Verse two, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. The church in Sardis teaches us a few things, and I wanna note three of them this morning. The first being this, that Jesus isn't fooled by appearances. Jesus is not fooled by appearances. Many of you know that uh, I like to barbecue, I like to smoke meat, and so I I, I watch, uh, there's a guy on YouTube that I like to watch. He does some crazy experiments. And he took a, a brisket, which, if you know me, you know I'm considered, that's at the top of the list for me. There's, there's nothing like a well cooked brisket. And what, one of the keys to a, uh, a well cooked brisket is slow and steady. And so this guy decided to try an experiment. And instead of smoking the brisket, he decided he would try the method of sous vide, which is basically putting it in a shrink wrapped bag and putting it in boiling water which is a legitimate method to cook, except he decided to do it at 140 degrees for one month and cook a brisket over the course of a month, which I see some of your faces. You know instantly where this story is going, right? He pulls it out, he cuts the bag open, and he he can't even stay in the room with this thing. It smells so bad. But what's crazy about it is I'm watching the video, and this brisket looked really good, I'm not gonna lie. I mean, it had the perfect coloring. He sliced it open, and it was just fall apart tender. By all appearances, this looked like a brisket that I wanted to eat, but it was rotten to the core. That is the church in Sardis. They had an appearance, Jesus said, they had a reputation in the city among other Christians, among the other churches of being alive, of having everything together. On the outside, it looked like everything was running in all cylinders in Sardis, yet Jesus says, you are dead, you're rotting from the inside. Specifically, he says, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my god to have a reputation of being alive they must have been doing some good things in the city they must have been serving people they must have been gathering and worshiping the lord together they must have been going through the motions and doing all of the things that you expect the church to do and yet Jesus says, your works are not complete. And I think what we'll see as we go through this passage is the main reason Jesus is saying this about them is while on the outside they had a reputation of being Christians and following after Christ, they were not proclaiming Christ. Here's something to know about Sardis. Archaeologists have found at this, during the time of this writing, they found a a synagogue that would have dated all the way back to there, a very large synagogue, which means that Sardis had a very large Jewish population. At this time in history, Rome considered, uh, considered Judaism to be a legitimate religion. They left the Jews alone for the most part. And they thought that Christians were just a sect of Judaism. And so the Christians in Sardis said, listen, let's just stay as close to the Jews as possible and make sure that Rome doesn't know that we're preaching a different message so that we don't get persecuted. They were doing a lot of good things, but they were not ultimately proclaiming Christ. They were trying to blend in with the crowd around them. Probably trying to blend in with the world around them too, committing immoral acts as we've seen many of the other churches doing as well. Sardis, and we'll see at the end of the series, Laodicea, out of all the seven churches, Sardis and Laodicea are the only two churches that there is not even a hint of persecution mentioned. Because why would Satan need to persecute a church that poses no threat to him? There's no persecution. The other churches, there's a lot of persecution and they're not far from each other. They're just really a few miles away. They're under the same Roman government, but they're not experiencing persecution because they're not doing anything that the world and Satan would want to persecute them for. Two verses come to mind that I think describe Sardis perfectly. 2 Timothy 3.5, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Paul is saying that about many of the false teachers Titus 1.16, Paul says, They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Paul does not say that they cannot do good works. He says they are unfit for any good works. That any good that they do is not really fitting in the sight of the Lord because they're not walking in the gospel. It's just a facade. It's just a face that they're putting on before the people around them. And I think that Sardis, sadly, is a description of many, many modern churches today, just like so many of the ones that we've already gone through. Having an appearance of godliness, growing, serving in the community, well thought of, thriving by all appearances, but not proclaiming Christ. Ultimately, trying to blend in with the world. Ultimately, trying to look as close to the world as possible. And many times... Many times I don't believe that the motive is necessarily even wrong. Many times it's done in the name of reaching people. Many times the heart is there to want to reach the culture, but while we try to blend in with the culture and not not get too much flack from the culture, we've lost our opportunity for witness. And we may be growing. We may have a reputation for being alive, but what Jesus said of Sardis is that though they had that reputation, they were spiritually dead. It's like the high school kid, wearing the letterman jacket, who just likes to wear it and walk around and be thought of as one of the guys, but he'd never get in the ring because he knows the minute that he did, he'd be destroyed. That's Sardis. Wanting to appear godly, wanting to appear like they have it all together, but rotting from the inside. And while this describes many churches, I also believe this sadly describes many Christians. And so Jesus' word to Sardis is maybe what you need to hear today in verse 2 again. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Because Jesus isn't fooled by appearances. You may have everyone else fooled. Your friends, your family, people around you. But you don't fool Jesus. Jesus, while he was on earth, had this to say of the Pharisees. In Luke 16, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Now, we often think of the Pharisees as people that we are never like, but this describes us many times. This describes me in my life many times where I'm, I'm trying to justify myself before other people. I'm trying to make sure that everybody thinks that I have it all together, and inwardly, I'm dying. Inwardly, I'm chasing after my own sin We don't fool God. And so Jesus tells them to wake up, and then he tells them how to wake up in verse three. He says, remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I'll come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Again, in every one of these cases, Jesus speaks to a church that is messed up, and he still gives them an opportunity to repent. There's grace here. The words from Jesus sound really harsh, but there's grace in saying, repent, come back. And we're gonna see the promise that he gives if they would repent, but don't mistake the warning. If not, he says, I'll come like a thief and you won't know at what hour I'll come against you. What Jesus is telling them ultimately is something that I talk about often. Number two, he's, t- he's, he's teaching them to go back to the gospel. That's what he's saying here. Remember what you've learned. Remember what you've heard. Remember the same gospel that saved you. I remember around middle school, uh, I, I played baseball all throughout my life, and I was, a, I was a decent hitter, but I had a stretch where I struggled pretty, pretty badly, and it was about middle school. I had a few games where I didn't have a hit, and I was number two in the lineup, and so that wasn't acceptable. And so one of my coaches uh, took me for a few hours, and he set up a tee to a fence, and he wanted me to hit the ball into, into the fence from the tee. Now, that was humiliating for me because I had not hit off of a tee since tee ball, right? And I thought it was ridiculous. But he spent time with me, teaching me the mechanics, taking me back to the fundamentals of the game of a swing. And the next game, I hit three home runs, which was really weird because they were about the only three that I ever hit in my career, right? In my illustrious middle and high school career. But I had to go back to, thank you, thank you for that applause. I appreciate that. I had to go back to the fundamentals, It was easy for me to want to get caught up in the flashiness of the game, to do everything in a way that was going to impress the people around me. But what I needed was to go back to the thing that I had learned all the way back in T-Ball, those fundamentals of the game. That's what Jesus is doing. Many Christians view the gospel as something that we get saved and then we move on to better things. But you don't move on from the gospel. You go deeper into it. And Jesus is saying, remember The truth of the gospel, go back to that truth that saved you. Your works are not complete. So remember Jesus' works for you and bank on that and walk in that. In other words, as Paul says in 2 Timothy, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He's talking to a pastor there, Timothy, He's talking to a pastor who many people might say has everything together. And he's saying, Timothy, don't forget the basics of the faith. Follow the pattern of sound teaching and faith. Continue in the gospel. But how often do we give people this kind of advice when they're stuck in sin or struggling in life? What we want to do is we want to give them some tips to fix everything. And I'm not saying that there are not life applications from Scripture. There are so many of them, but they all need to flow from the gospel. It all needs to come from an understanding of who Christ is and what he has done for us, not an understanding of my own abilities to walk in righteousness. Remembering and keeping the gospel isn't a formula for success. It's a message. It is the message of the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, and it is the power of God for salvation for those who believe, not just for salvation but for our sanctification as well. Now, I gotta be honest with you that this series so far, if you've been with us throughout this series, you might agree with me in that there been, there, these have been some pretty heavy messages. This has not been an easy series to walk through because Jesus' words to all of these churches are really hard to hear. And I've, I've been tempted each week as I approach the text to go, Jesus, like I really hope that the next church that we get to is gonna be in a little bit better of a situation. Like I hope that it's, gonna, it's just gonna get better at some point. And I remembered that as harsh as it may seem that Jesus is being to these churches, what he's doing in every single instance is he's extending his grace to them. Because he's saying, yes, things are bad. Yes, you are spiritually dead. But each time he says, but repent. And I'm ready and willing to forgive, to restore. I love what John Newton said here. He said, if our physician is almighty and our disease disease then cannot be desperate, and if he casts out none that come to him, why should you fear? Our sins are many, but his mercies are more. Our sins are great, but his righteousness is greater. We are weak, but he is power. So in every one of these instances, I go, man, things were really bad there, but not so bad that they were outside of the reach of the grace of Jesus. Jesus. And so if you've been walking through this series with us or even just today and you go, man, this is is bringing up a lot of stuff in my life. I feel like I'm being exposed and the sin in my life and my spiritual slumber is a lot like Sardis and maybe you're tempted to mourn and grieve. Well, my prayer is, is that that grief would be a godly grief that leads you to repentance because your sin is not so great that his mercy will not be more. And he invites you to come in repentance back to him. When uh, our daughter, Lily, who, if you don't know, is three, when she's about to do something that's dangerous, um, in that moment, we, we may say things or we may yell in such a way to stop her that may be startling to her and may even upset her, but it's for her good, right? It may not be easy for her to hear. She may not want us to stop her from doing the things she's about to be doing, but in some instances, it's literally going to save her life. That's what Jesus does for us. It's not easy to hear. It's not a comfortable thing to have your heart open and exposed before the Lord to see your sin for what it is. Nobody's saying that's easy. What we're saying is he's the only one who can do anything about it. What we're saying is he's the one who says, bring, bring yourself to me in repentance and I will forgive. He doesn't cast out anybody who comes to him. And he always forgives. There is no sin too great that he will not forgive The message is similar to Paul's words in Ephesians 5. Anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The message of Jesus is to start us Yes, you are spiritually dead, walking in darkness. Come to the light. Let the light of the gospel shine down on you again. And yes, expose your heart so that you may be forgiven and walk in the light. The invitation is there. To remember and walk in the gospel of Christ. The good news is, <clears throat> things were not all bad in Sardis. It wasn't as if every single person in this church had turned away or was walking in sin. Jesus goes on in verses four and five, he says, Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Our third point is another one that really is, seems basic to Christianity, but it's Jesus' word to Sardis, and I think it's his word, or I know it's his word to us today as well. Number three, Jesus saves and secures his people. He says, there are some who are walking in white garments and they are keeping their garments clean. Just like a bride getting ready for her wedding day, making sure that nothing happens to her dress, making sure that it is ready for that day that she meets her groom. So the church seeks to walk in white until the day that we stand face to face before our bridegroom Christ. To see him face to face, to stand before him in white, And before you start going, wait a minute, were these people something special? Jesus says that they're worthy. He says they're walking in white. I don't feel like I can ever do that. No, no, no. If you look at verse 5, you see very clearly that Jesus says he's the one who clothes them. In verse 5, he says the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, not by themselves, but by Jesus. They're not our garments. They're his. He clothes us. And we walk in his righteousness, and we walk in his truth. Jesus says, there's some among Sardis who have not soiled their garments. They've stood strong and continued in the gospel even though the rest of the church is not. Even though the world around them is walking in sin, they have not. And I gotta think it's likely, much like we talked about last week, it's very likely that these Christians were being ridiculed by their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who were not walking the way that they were. And they were being, whether, whether outwardly or not, they probably felt ostracized from their own church community because they were seeking to walk in holiness and nobody else was. And I'm sure that they were, thought, they were not thought well of by the world around them because they were the ones actually trying to proclaim Christ. And yet, Jesus says, I know you. I acknowledge you, I see you, and I will acknowledge you before the Father. We're reminded of these people, as John Bloom says, that we aren't who we want to think we are or who other people think we are. All we truly are is who we are before God. See, Jesus contrasts these people with the people in verse one, because in verse one, he says, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. And then he says, there are a few names in Sardis. It's the same word as the word for reputation in verse one. Just as there are some who have a false reputation, there are those of you who are being ostracized and you're walking in holiness and your reputation, your true name before the Lord is that you are worthy because of the righteousness of Christ, not because of your own doing. We're not who we want to think we are or who other people think we are. All we truly are is who we are before God. And so in a world that is obsessed with finding your true self, the freedom of the gospel says you can stare your true sinful self in the face and not be intimidated by it because you can bring that to Jesus and be forgiven and be made new. Because when we search for ourselves, we're going to come up empty. You may find a temporary fulfillment in this life, but when you allow God to expose you and forgive, and restore, and give you a new heart. That's where life is. That's who we need to pursue after. And these few were walking in the righteousness of Christ, unstained by the world. And it's easy to think that maybe they were walking in perfection, but let me remind you one more time, their garments were not their own. They had been given to them by Jesus Christ himself. It reminds me of a story or a vision that Zechariah had in Zechariah chapter 3. He says, Now Joshua, who was the high priest, was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. I'm going to take away the sin and the filth, and I'm going to clothe you in white. That's what Christ does for his people. Now, this, would have, this illustration, by the way, would have meant a lot to Sardis because one of the other things you need to know about this city is they, they were known for the amount of wool garments that they produced. They knew what it meant to deal with pure white wool garments. And Jesus says, I'm going to clothe you in white, and you won't be able to be stained by this world. And he goes even further. He says, matter of fact, for the one who conquers, which we've seen each week, is the one who repents and the one who turns to Christ. The one who conquers, he says, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. The book of life is something that we see throughout scripture. But there's one instance I wanna take you to and it's at the end of the book of Revelation. This is where we see the book of life opened. When Jesus, when when the dead in Christ are raised, when all those who have died are raised and stand before the judgment seat of Christ, this is the scene that John writes for us in Revelation 20. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and then another book was opened, which is the book of life. So what you need to understand is there are books that are opened, and then there is the book of life. That's going to be important, because he says, the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And then jump to verse 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so there's there's image where we have, we stand before Christ, we stand before everything we've ever done, judged by our works. And then Jesus opens the book of life. And those names that are written in the book of life, no matter what we've done, despite our shortcomings, despite falling short of the glory of Christ, each and every one of us, Those names that are written in the book of life will enter into heaven, will be with their Savior for eternity. And Jesus says, I'll never blot their name out. No matter what you do, no matter how far you may fall at times. Matter of fact, in Revelation 13, we see, verse eight, we see that our names have been written in the book of life since before the foundation of the world. This is sure. And Jesus says, those who are mine, I know them and I'll never lose them. So he not only saves us and clothes us in white, but he keeps us in white. He keeps us pure. And he continues to purify us until the day that we stand before him clothed in white that is not our own, clothed in righteousness that is not our own, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. In the Roman world, they had citizenship books And if you did something that they considered so bad, they could blot your name out of citizenship books, which was a serious thing. But Christ says, I'll never do that to my people. Those who are the citizens of heaven will always be the citizens of heaven. I'll save them, I'll secure them, I'll sanctify them, and I'll keep them until that day. And so, in conclusion, I want to echo the words of H.B. Charles It is said that anything dead should be buried. Thank God Jesus doesn't think that way. We saw at the beginning of verse one Jesus said to Sardis, You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And instead of condemning them and giving them no hope, He calls them to repentance. He gives them an opportunity to be made alive. And He gives us the same opportunity. Though apart from Christ we are dead in our sin, the invitation is to repent from our sin, turn to the gospel, place our faith and trust in the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The one who died was buried and was raised to life again, and we will be clothed in white. Our names will never be blotted out of the book of life. And then Jesus says this staggering thing that that I've read so much that I kind of glossed over it in my study, and then I came to the end, and I began to just... Just get a taste of the significance of this when Jesus says, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. When I was applying for my green card, because I'm a Bahamian citizen and I had to get a green card to live and work here, when I was applying for my green card, my wife had to vouch for me, which maybe, I don't know, she's probably had days that she's regretted doing that throughout the course of our marriage, but she had to vouch for me. And when we, when we were in the interview room, she had to say, this is my husband, and yes, we are married, and yes, we love each other, and all of those things. She had to vouch for me. She had to confess my name, in a sense, to those people interviewing us. And Jesus says, I will confess your name before my Father. Because in and of ourselves, we don't deserve, we don't deserve heaven. We don't deserve being in the presence of a holy God. Because our garments are filthy, are stained, and even our good works, Isaiah says, are as filthy rags before him. And yet, Jesus says, if all you would do is repent and turn to me, I'll clothe you in white, and you'll stand before my Father, and the books will be open, and you'll be judged by everything you've ever done. But at the end of it all, those who have repented and turned to me, I will confess their name before my Father. And you will be with us for eternity. Jesus reminds us in Matthew 10, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. The church in Sardis wanted the acknowledgement of the world. They wanted to be acknowledged by the city that they dwelt in. And what Jesus tells us is that for those who are in me, I'm going to acknowledge before my Father And so the church in Sardis were compromising and they were spiritually dead because they wanted to chase after the things of this world because it is a sacrifice to follow after Christ. And it requires giving up our lives to follow him, to acknowledge his name before the world. And the church in Sardis was worried about what they were going to have to give up and Jesus is reminding them everything that they gain by confessing the name of Christ, by walking in light. Last passage. Luke 12, Jesus says, Blessed will be those servants the Master finds alert when He comes. Truly I tell you, He will get ready, have them recline at the table, and then come and serve them. Jesus tells us that for those who are in Him, those who confess His name before the world, those who repent from their sins and turn to Him, He says, I'll have a table ready for you and I'll prepare it and I'll seat you and I'll serve you. What a picture. What a picture, what a promise. And so, yeah, living the way that we've seen Jesus call the churches to live so far in this series is hard, and it requires sacrifice, and it requires laying down our own desires for the sake of the desires of Christ, and we give up a whole lot, but we gain everything in return because we gain garments of white, our names written in the book of life, and a seat at the table. And Jesus says, the one who confesses my name before the Father, I will confess, before the world rather, I will confess their name before my Father. And when the book of life is opened and the role is called, my name will be there. Will your name be there? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes as we as we pray and reflect just for a moment? I have um, throughout this series. Been challenging you to examine your life because I think that's what each one of these letters is really doing for us. It's, it's teaching us to examine our own hearts and see Am I living like the people in Sardis were living? Am I putting on a front before my family and friends, before my church, having a reputation of being alive but spiritually dead? Am I living in such a way that outwardly everything looks fine, but inwardly I know that I'm not united with Christ? There's the challenge, first and foremost, to anybody that's never repented of their sin and turned to Jesus, that I want you to know today that Jesus Christ came to earth, God put on flesh, and he walked and lived a sinless life, that we can never live. And then he went to the cross which where he not only endured unimaginable physical pain but he endured the wrath of God poured out on him for the sins of his people. And he paid the price that we could have never paid. We were deserving of the wrath of God and instead Jesus took it for us. And he died and was buried and three days later he rose again proving that he is who he says he is. And he calls us to repent from our sin and turn to him and place our faith and trust in him. The call for you is if you've never done that, to do that today. Maybe you've never done that, but you've lived your whole life with an appearance of godliness. There are those who will stand before the throne one day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do these things in your name? And there are some he will say, depart from me, I never knew you because the reputation of being alive is not what saves. Only Jesus saves. So turn to Jesus. And then finally, if you're in here and you are a believer in Jesus, you know that you are in Christ. But you've been living in sin and either today or throughout this series, God's been exposing that sin to you. Would You run to him. Our disease is not so desperate that he cannot forgive, as John Newton said. Your sin is great. My sin is great. His mercy is more. Run to him. God, I want to pray for everybody in this room and those watching online as well, listening to this. I want to pray that you would expose our hearts, as hard as it is to pray that prayer because for those of us who have had that done before, we know just how ugly it can be when we see the sin in our flesh for what it really is. But God, what freedom there is in knowing that you didn't turn away from us. You didn't turn your back on us. You instead, God, turn your back on your son, Jesus. You, you, Jesus was forsaken so that we wouldn't have to be. As ugly as our sin is, your mercy is more. But we have to still see our sin for what it is and confess it and acknowledge it. I pray for everybody listening to this that we would do that. Maybe some in here for the very first time acknowledging their sin before you. Not just that their life hasn't been quite what they wanted it to be, but that they have sinned, that they are a sinner. We're all born into sin. We are all born deserving of your wrath, falling short of the holiness of God. And yet, Jesus, you lived the life we couldn't live. You died the death we deserved so that you could give us your life, give us your righteousness. You took our sin. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for this truth that no matter how bad things get, no matter how many times we stumble and fall, you have clothed us in white, your people, and we will stand before your throne complete. And no matter how much we struggle and claw our way trying to walk in a matter that's worthy of the gospel, you are the one that carries us through. May we find encouragement in that. May we find rest in that. Finally, God, I, I pray I pray for godly grief. Not, not worldly grief that leads to despair and leaves people walking away from this not knowing what to do and feeling heavy laden, but a grief that leads to repentance, which leads us to you who said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Because your yoke is easy, your burden is light. We cast our cares, our sin, at the foot of the cross and find life. Thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. May you continue to speak to us through your word even as we leave today. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.